Hi, you're listening to the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. On this podcast, we hear from the traditional to the wacky, from renowned corporate risk experts to former spies and special forces soldiers. There is something to learn about the way we perceive, manage, and mitigate risk from all of our guests. Your host, Dominic Bowen, will ask the questions that you will want the answers to. You know Dominic, then you know that he is well acquainted with risk. Dominic has successfully established operations in most of the major war zones and disaster-affected countries over the last 20 years. He is no stranger to risk and uncertainty and joined by our excellent guests, he'll reveal innovative ideas on how you can ensure your organisation thrives in areas with high risk. Hi, I'm Dominic and I'm the host of the International Risk Podcast. Today, we're joined by Humaria Rubin, a powerful activist from Afghanistan who's fighting for women's equality and who's also a gender specialist. And she's going to discuss with us gender inequality and risks to segregation on women in Afghanistan and what the future might hold for people living in Afghanistan. She's an analyst at an NGO in the UK and a fellow at the New America Afghanistan Observatory. Welcome to the podcast. Pleasure is all mine, Dominic. Thank you so much for having me. Humara, I'd love to hear your story about what growing up in Afghanistan was like and and ultimately why you decided to leave. Thank you so much, Dominic. So I was born in Afghanistan and I was very young, like two years old um, during the civil war and in Kabul and and other provinces that we had to leave and great Pakistan. So I was born in Afghanistan, but spent my whole childhood in Pakistan as a refugee kid. And then after the after 2001, when the Taliban regime was toppled down, we could come back to Afghanistan. So it's been like partly in Afghanistan and partly in Pakistan. And the reason why I left Afghanistan this time, it's been like two times experiencing displacement, unfortunately. This time was like my work and my profile and activities I had. And I had to leave Afghanistan several months before the regime was collapsed um, in August 2021. And I remember speaking with many people during that period when the Americans and other coalition partners were withdrawing from Afghanistan. And there was, of course, lots of assessments, lots of people considering what the future in Afghanistan would look like. And and some people were predicting the Taliban would take months to take over. On the podcast, we had someone and he predicted days. Sadly, he was correct. But you said you were able to leave several months before. What was it? I mean, we talk a lot about on the podcast about risk forecasting and understanding the future and understanding how risks might evolve. Was it just coincidence? Or did you have some good insight into it was the time to leave? Actually, not really. It wasn't really planned. At that time, before the collapse happened, uh, target killings of activists, journalists, media, uh, people, and uh, people who were working with international and foreign organizations like myself. I previously worked as the gender advisor for the Dutch diplomatic mission in Kabul. And I previously worked as the, the gender advisor for the Dutch diplomatic mission in Kabul. And the target killings really increased at that time. They were targeting people and no one knew who was next. So it was not just me, but a number of people, unfortunately, dozens of people who had to kind of think about relocating and choosing another country to either temporarily or maybe for forever. Uh, think of like go 
going to another place. And I had to like make my mind for my safety and the safety of my family. And that was the reason. I mean, it was not planned. It happened like overnight. We had to make quick decisions about leaving, unfortunately. And we did. And we ended up like being away from Afghanistan for more than a year and two years now. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate your openness and sharing your story with us. At the end of 2022, the Taliban removed the opportunity for women to pursue education. How has this ban on women and girls attending education and attending schools affected young women? And how have they participated in movements and protests to reachieve their rights? Yeah, you're right, Dominic. The Taliban actually banned teenage girls from pursuing secondary and higher high schools um, shortly after they returned to power in August 2021. And then the next year in March, there were rumors that they would allow them back, but they didn't. And last year, like a month ago, um, 20 December, they decided and they issued another letter and asked universities not to allow female students to attend their classes across the country. And just some days ago, on 28 January, they issued another letter to addressing private universities that they are not allowed to enroll female students to apply, female applicants to, to be enrolled for university entrance exams. So it's been like a string of restrictions and bans back to back. And as per my own experience of talking and being in touch with women, and especially girls, like high school students and university students, it's been like a for them, it's like a sense of utter hopelessness and at the same time anger. They shortly after the ban on universities, they students and protesters, women protesters, and in particular they in several provinces in Kabul and Tahar and Herat, even in Nangarhar and other provinces, uh, they protested against the ban. And in some cases, male protesters also joined them. But the Taliban used violence against the protests and they suppressed the protests. And in cases. They, they detained a number of protesters, and, 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 and at least in two of the provinces in Kabul and Herat, Kabul and Tahar, that I am aware of. So it's been like a suppression of protests that led these women and girls to turn to indoor protests. And nowadays, it's like on a daily basis, they hold indoor protests, like they usually cover their faces, they hold play cards, and they condemn what has happened. And unfortunately, and they ask for help from the international community and for intervention. So it's not been merely a sense of hopelessness, but a sense of anger and also standing for themselves and standing against the ban. I mean, for people that haven't been to Afghanistan, they might just assume that Afghanistan, it was the British and then the Russians and then America and other coalition partners. You know, Afghanistan's been a country at war for a very, very, very long time. But I think for those of us that have had the real blessing to be able to spend a considerable period of time in Afghanistan, we've seen that there has been periods of relative peace, periods where people have been able to pursue education education. Kids have been able to skateboard, you know, people have been able to open up businesses and, and pursue new opportunities. When you were growing up and when you were able to go back into Afghanistan after 2001, did you, as you were starting to see the opportunities and live a more normal life than when the Taliban was in control pre-2001, did you ever think that you would be in this position? I mean, you talked about that sense of utter hopelessness. Did you ever think that we'd be in the position that we are today? 
I'm happy that you kind of touched upon this point because returning back to Afghanistan after 2001, it was like a life-changing experience for me. I mean, I suffered a lot of discrimination, a lot like poverty, financial hardship, and many other challenges in Pakistan as a child. And when we go back to Afghanistan, my family, my parents are to educate people. They got back their jobs. They got back their social status. And I could enjoy the opportunities we had at that time. And I feel really privileged, especially nowadays that I compare my teenage years with the girls nowadays in Afghanistan. I feel like, oh, I was so glad that I grew up during those years. So it was a lot of opportunities for people, especially for women and girls, to flourish despite there were flaws. They were like the former Afghan government was also heavily corrupt. But they were, despite all that, there were chances for women to flourish, to thrive and to use those opportunities. To be honest, there always was a shadow of the Taliban in our lives, despite that we never felt that they would come back. But we always felt, as I remember my own teenage years, that there were sometimes rumors like, oh, the Taliban are coming back or they are negotiating peace deals with former government. And there was a fear and a feeling. And we knew if there comes a day that they come back, what they will bring with them, what would they do again. So it was not really a kind of a distant, a distant, a distant feeling. I mean, they were fighting against the former government in the several provinces at that time. And we could see that and we could feel that through our families and relatives. But the return of the Taliban could have been a surprise, but the way they treated this time, especially women and girls, wasn't really a surprise because we went through the, the Taliban regime during the, their first era and their first time that they took power. But we know from years of research that limiting access to education increases the risk of poverty and economic insecurity. And without access to education, it's much more challenging for girls in Afghanistan to gain the skills and knowledge necessary to secure meaningful employment, leaving them even more vulnerable to poverty and economic insecurity. Humaira, how will the current inequalities affect the economic independence of women in Afghanistan? And what are the new risks that this loss of economic independence will expose women? Thank you so much, Dominic. I previously worked with the USAID, the United States Agency for International Development in Kabul, as their policy advisor, and we working on increasing the participation of women in government. And part of our work was to reform the existing laws and regulations in order to enable more women to join the civil service. And even at that time, it wasn't really easy. There were a lot of hurdles that we had to overcome, and our partner organizations, and but women overall in the country. I think with the current regime, with the Taliban and their restrictions, and when it comes to women's economic independence, I think one side is that we see and one side is that we don't see. And it's a long-term thing that's happening. One side is that we see, okay, women have been deprived of the right education, they're, they're deprived of the right to work, but there's so many other things that we cannot see because the country is on a verge of economic collapse. It's suffering from environmental uh, challenges nowadays. I mean, Afghanistan today is seeing an unprecedented cold weather condition. So all these together have all these factors together. I think the impact of all these factors together are much 
disasters that we think. I mean, for example, the Taliban allow girls from first to sixth grade to pursue primary education, but there are areas and there are conditions that even families cannot allow those girls to even pursue primary education. And they are forcing women and girls to marry marriages without their consent. So I think overall, in the long term, the impact is unfortunately disastrous. And it's not just the Afghan women and girls, but overall families, the Afghan society, and the impact of displacement, like millions of people have left the country and millions are trying to leave the country. They are being displaced and they live in harsh conditions in other countries, especially in third countries, awaiting resettlement. These all factors all together make it like it's something we would never be able to reverse, really, the impacts and effects of what's happening. Thank you for mentioning, Hamara, that some risks are seen and others unseen, including early marriage. When limiting education also increases the risk of early marriage and girls who are unable to access education are at greater risk of being forced to marry at a young age. And being married at a young age brings its own risks, which include devastating long-term consequences, including physical risks, because these girls are often so very, very young, mental risks, and of course, economic well-being that we just discussed. What do you expect to emerge with regards to risks from early marriage of young girls in Afghanistan in the coming years. How do we expect this prevalence of early marriage and an increase in early marriage, which will most likely flow on from a lack of access to education? How do you think that's going to impact these girls, but also Afghan society at large? Again, I think the risks are far more than and beyond what we can imagine because early marriages, as you said, they keep girls away from they keep girls away from whatever educational opportunities left. They risk their mental, their physical health. And what Afghanistan has been suffering but was improving before the Taliban takeover was the maternal deaths that women suffer during delivering children. And that was the rates were really kind of going down in the recent years before the Taliban. But now it's again, the reports say it's increasing because of lack of facilities, of course, lack of access to those facilities, lack of female staff, but also due to the fact that women and girls are forced to marriages in early ages. And and we also hear about malnutrition. It is partly because of the famine, lack of access to food and basic needs, but also due to the fact that women in early ages, they are not able to be your healthy children. So it's more than we can imagine. There are many sides to it and it's utterly disastrous, not just for women, for girls, but for Afghan families, Afghan societies and future generations, unfortunately. I mean, I've had the real blessing of leading health programs around the world, including Syria, Yemen, Lebanon, Pakistan. And I recognize that one of the biggest risks to healthcare is poor education or lack of education. And without access to education, girls in Afghanistan are much less likely to be informed about their rights, about healthcare options, and it's going to leave them at greater risk of disease and and other health-related issues. Can you describe the quality of Afghanistan when you were growing up and then what the current situation is today and what the impacts are going to be? I think the number of women attending universities in Afghanistan as of 2021, before the Taliban takeover, was more than 100,000 female students. And now, according to UNESCO, it's zero now. You can see the change from 100,000 female students, it comes to zero. And the number of girls attending secondary schools in Afghanistan is like a more than a million girls, and it's now zero. So again, when I was going to university, I was going to school, I was among 
those millions and thousands of students going to university and high schools, despite all the challenges, all the flaws. I always say it's not, it wasn't like Afghanistan was a heaven before the Taliban took over. It was, there were lots of challenges we were dealing with. But again, it's not comparable to what's happening now, unfortunately. And for generations, women and girls of Afghanistan will suffer from what the Taliban has done to them. And it's very difficult to reverse them because the four couple of years the Taliban ruled before, it took us like 20 years to kind of reverse, at least relatively, some of the things, the damage that happened. This time, I don't know how, how many years the Taliban will continue to rule, but it will take generations to reverse what's happening, given the numbers. I mean, the numbers itself kind of demonstrate what the impact and disastrous impact the restrictions are having in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think there's so many risks that this lack of education brings, including increased risk of gender-based violence. I mean, restricting girls' access to education also increases their risks of being victims of gender-based violence as they're unable to gain the knowledge and skills to protect themselves. But also it reduces people's participation in society and in politics. And that's going to be critical if we're going to see change in Afghanistan. I mean, girls who are denied access to education are obviously much less likely to be in informed about their rights, about their civic obligations, and makes it much harder for people to engage in social and political activities. With that baseline, how do you think Afghans and Afghan women are going to be able to advocate in the long term for their rights and participate in politics when they're not even able to get a basic education? That's completely right. I mean, let me talk about the problem of domestic violence. Domestic violence was pervasive before the Taliban took over as well. That's why former government created a law, the Elimination of Violence Against Women, a law, and created specialized courts to deal with cases of domestic violence. There were dozens of shelters or safe houses for women who faced domestic violence to kind of, in face of domestic violence, they could seek refuge to. Unfortunately, along with the big things that make headlines like women's education and things like that, the Taliban have been removing, demolishing all these structures, institutions to keep women relatively at least safe from domestic violence. I mean, I agree and I accept that lack of education kind of disables women and girls to advocate, to be aware of it and to kind of talk about it. But in the meantime, they have demolished everything that existed before for women to at least seek safety. There now is a very limited number of safe houses active in Afghanistan and they're not accepting new entries. And those who were previously, they are completely closed. So I think it's been all these factors go hand in hand. And in terms of advocating, the current generation of Afghan women and girls are much braver than any other generation I have seen. I mean, they have risked their own lives. They have risked their families, their safety. But they have advocated. They have marched in Kabul and other cities' streets and against the Taliban's ban. They faced detentions and many other things that they faced during detention. And some of them had to leave the country due to the intimidation and the threats. What I mean to say is the past 20 years kind of raised the generation with the weapon of education and growing numbers of university and school, a generation that today stands against the Taliban ban with courage. 
So if we don't have that kind of conducive environment, of course, people, girls, especially women and girls, it will be difficult to kind of know if something is wrong at the first place. And then it's very difficult to kind of raise a voice against it, especially domestic violence is a kind of a very sensitive issue in Afghanistan. And we were finding it difficult even before the Taliban to kind of mitigate it. So unfortunately, that is how, as I mentioned, it goes like hand in hand with so many factors, contributing factors together. You mentioned some fantastic points then, Hamara, and inequality has clearly increased in the past year. And one of the really overt demonstrations of that was the significant loss of the abolishment of the Ministry of Women's Affairs. Now, you've pursued a master's degree in public policy with a focus on integrating women into government and shaping laws that fight inequality. Is it going to be possible to negotiate with the Taliban for new laws and new ministries that are more inclusive and respectful to women's rights? Yes, I agree. I I did a degree in public policy and I worked before with the former government to kind of enable more women to join the civil service and the Afghan government. And along with that, the environment was conducive for us to kind of negotiate and talk to government authorities about the former Afghan constitution. The Taliban actually abolished former Afghan constitution that gave special quota for women parliament representatives, like 69 female representatives and senators held seats in former Afghan parliament. The parliament that was a lawmaking entity, it doesn't exist. So there's no constitution, no independent lawmaking entity. And other laws they abolish, like the evil law I talked about, and they merely abide by their strict and rigid interpretation of the Sharia law. And that interpretation is not open to change. It's not open to negotiations. And especially today, there are no channels for civil society activists because many of the organizations had to leave. Many of the activists had to leave. And in today's, under the Taliban, there's no, unfortunately, no way to kind of sit with them, especially for women to negotiate and, and change the law because it's like a rigid interpretation of the Sharia law. No one is able to change that and you have to like abide by it. It is what it is. So as I said, I don't see any way of changing it or negotiating because Taliban closed all the doors. You raised some points I'd really like to explore with you in there. And one of them being, how should international actors like the US and UK governments, as as well as organizations like the United Nations, be engaging with an actor like the Taliban? It's a great point. I mean, I, I think from the process of engaging with the Taliban, from the beginning was a flawed from the beginning. I mean, I was working at that time, I was in Kabul um, at that time when the peace process with the Taliban in Doha, the US initiated the peace process with the Taliban in Doha. And I, uh, many activists, organizations, especially women and analysts, they were at that time warning the US government that the way you are negotiating with the terrorist group and you're sidelining the Afghan government and especially that not enough of women voices were involved in the process. So we were warning at that time that the process is flawed, it's going to impact, will be disastrous, but unfortunately, they didn't hear those voices. And now the process itself was flawed from the beginning, and still they stick to those beliefs about the Taliban. I think the international community, and especially the governments who had more role in all these developments, the UK government and the US government and the UN and others, is to kind of remind themselves of 
the Taliban ideology. In the past few years, they were like believed like, oh, there's a Taliban too. They are more open. They have changed and things like that. They have to remind that the Taliban ideology is very rigid and kind of remind themselves that these are their principles and they're not going to change it. And this is how they have been behaving in the past several months. Another thing they have to remind themselves is like Taliban is a terrorist group. I mean, they, today they rule Afghanistan, but in the past 20 years, they killed thousands of people in different parts of Afghanistan with suicide bombings. And when they took power, they didn't even apologize for the, all the casualties, for all the sufferings that people went through. And another thing they have to remind themselves is that the Taliban, despite all the claims, despite all the whitewashings, they did not show any sign of change or commitment that the international community was hoping for. I mean, Zawahiri was killed by the U.S. in the capital of Afghanistan in Kabul. The Taliban are providing safe havens for other tourist groups and TTP. We saw what happened in Peshawar several days ago. The TTP is emboldened. Other terrorist groups are emboldened. They're receiving support. So I think these factors are enough to convince the international community how to deal with the Taliban. Unlike what's said, that they don't have any leverages or have lesser leverages, I think still there are many leverages that you can use. I mean, the U.S. especially provide the Taliban central bank with weekly aid of millions of dollars. And the Taliban authorities still have a political office in Qatar. And they have businesses in the Middle East and so many other things that they could use and they could pressure the Taliban. But mainly, again, I would reiterate that they kind of have to remind themselves about who the Taliban are and not to believe an illusion of this Taliban too, the change, the open one. Because what's happening recently, it's quite clear, unfortunately, nothing hopeful for the international community to stick with. Whilst not always a guarantee, certainly the best predictor of future behaviour is past behaviour and uh, the indications of how the Taliban would act in the future, you know, and is proving to act today is, is consistent with how they were acting, behaviour and policies and laws that were enacted before 2001. You mentioned earlier civil society and you, you mentioned that there is some things that can be done. Often the risks of inaction or corruption or abuse by governments and mitigated by the work of civil society. I wonder, Humaira, what role do you think civil society can play in strengthening human rights in Afghanistan and mitigating some of the risks of inequality that women and other marginalised groups are going to be experiencing now? Thank you, Dominic. I think the current situations, the majority of civil society organizations, they had to relocate. So they are operating abroad from outside Afghanistan. Human rights defenders, a lot in large numbers, they had to leave the country. And those remaining in the country, they face a threat and intimidation and they fear for their lives. I mean, what I think what I think we can do at this time is the diaspora and civil society. It's kind of impossible inside the country. Now it's, I think, there's more to the civil society activists and organizations and diaspora to do as much as they can. I mean, I've seen recently of networks of them coming back together. I mean, the first year was like a year of shock and trauma and people didn't know where to start from. But I can see now they're slowly getting back 
to work and they're organizing better and coordinating better. So I think it's all on them in the current situation to work as hard as they can and especially help those inside the country and those wandering in third countries. I've been talking to several female protesters in the recent months that they had to leave Kabul and other provinces after they were detained. And now they tell me how they are left without any support in countries like Pakistan. And they're waiting resettlement. And the other day I was talking to a former member of provincial council. I don't want to kind of specify it. She was a female member of council in one of the northern provinces of Afghanistan. And we had a chat. She was asking me if I know and I have contact to help her get out of Pakistan because of course she faces poverty there. She faces uncertainty there. And she was telling me she cannot even trust and she cannot even feel safe in Pakistan. So I mean, there are I would reiterate that it's up to the diaspora to help themselves, help those wandering in, in third countries, be the voice of those trapped inside Afghanistan and who cannot raise their voices, unfortunately. Well, thanks so much for sharing those insights. I really appreciate you coming on the International List podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was a great conversation with Gamara Rabin. And I really appreciated hearing her thoughts on the risks to women in Afghanistan and potential opportunities for engagement. Please go to wherever you download the podcast and subscribe to future podcasts to ensure you always receive our podcast in your inbox. Thanks for listening. I'm Dominic Bowen, and we'll speak again next week. You've been listening to the International Risk Podcast, hosted by Dominic Bowen. Please go to wherever you download your podcasts and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. If you know someone that has experienced successfully working with risk, has a great story to share and would like to come on the show, send us an email at contact at the international risk podcast.com. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for your fix of risk-related stories.